0: The Hard Shoulder,
1: on Talk
0: with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at Nissan.ie. You're
1: very welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cudahy with you until seven o'clock. And joining me for the Thursday interview this week, I'm delighted to say, is Joe Broly. Joe, you're very welcome to the programme. How are you? Great, thank you. How are you? I, I'm, I'm, I'm not too bad at all. Um... I, I, I generally start these interviews given the, the 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 experience of everyone asking them how they've got on over the last year. You don't strike me as the type of person who's generally idle for very long. Have you been idle at all over the last 12 months or keeping busy?
0: No, I would say my, my life is probably a life of the mind. And you know, so just to give you a small example, I write a few columns a week, but they're all composed in my head. So when I sit down to write, I heard a fascinating interview once with Agatha Christie at the, I'm not comparing myself to her, obviously, but I heard a fascinating interview with her on the BBC where she said that the, the, she was asked about the ideas for her books. And she said, well, she said, it, it just seems to swim around in my head. And then one day I have to sit down and uh, it spills out onto the page and uh, I was I was very attracted to that idea so obviously with me being you know a lawyer and consultant on all sorts of projects and writing and having an active mind and being an insomniac it means that uh,
1: I'm I'm occupied when you say you're an insomniac what do you mean by that
0: uh, well since I was a small child I uh, have struggled to sleep Um, I would have, you know, abating now, but would have had constant nightmares and they're still there at times. And, um, so night has always been fearful for me. And it's always a relief, it's always a relief to be up in the morning, to, to be standing in the cold shower or else if if I'm handy to a river or the sea, to get out there first thing in the morning. And then you start all over again. It's a new world again.
1: What are the nightmares about? Well, for for many years, I uh,
0: would uh, see a, a dead boy, you know, the, a badly burned boy sitting at the bottom of the bed. And uh, it appeared real to me, uh, even though I knew that that wasn't so. And uh, and obviously, I had a, a, I was like, like many people, a very uh, disrupted childhood because of what was going on around us. And when I was small, the British Army and the the state paid a particular interest to our house. I wasn't precisely sure why, but uh, my father was imprisoned then for a number of years. He was taken away and interned. And my, uh, so internment for your younger listeners is essentially something that I suppose people nowadays would think only happens in Putin's Russia or China. But a thousand men a thousand Catholic men were rounded up and taken to a prison encampment outside Belfast which was named Longish by the men and essentially they were kept there my father was kept there for over three years without charge or without trial and, um, and then one day we got a knock on the door because we didn't have a phone we got a knock on the door from the shopkeeper next door and he said Anne, that was my mother's name, Anne, you have to go and pick Francie up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> How old were you when your dad was sent to Lankesh? Well, so I'd been four,
0: three, four, four. And, well, you see, because it was a very tight community and, you know, the, the everyone knew everyone and the civil rights had... Been met with violent repression, and then there was the dilemma. Obviously, the debate will look: do we continue with this? Uh, do we continue unarmed and continue to to try and protest and be beaten and all the rest? Of it? Do we do we hold the line as John Hume is suggesting, or is it time now, given the level of repression? I mean, an entire street, Bombay Street and Falls Road, the, the entire street was burned out. Mm. By uh, a sort of a you know a mob, a loyalist mob accompanied by the the state police and so that you know there was that friction and I can remember it I can remember very clearly towards the end of the 70s John Heumann, the Holland Given said for God's sake we need to stop you know we need to stop and the mood of the meeting was against him He said like what do you expect us to do? How do you expect us to? To, to to get through this unless unless people are taking up the gun uh, my my attitude always was that human life was sacred and you know i've always had that probably because of my experiences but you can see that there was that great friction and i mean i i i, did, I never detected that anyone took pleasure in the violence mm. but I think in a town like Dungiven, it was seen as a necessary evil. It was them or us. And so, you know, a lot of men from around Dungiven, like we had two hunger strikers. Kevin Lynch, who was the captain of our hurling team, died in hunger strike. And so it was very immediate for us. I mean, my uncle Eunan, whose uh, life went into free fall afterwards when he was 17 years of age. He was a very promising schoolboy in St. Columns College. Like my father before him, he was a scholar, a Latin scholar, all of that. Tremendous, you know, at linguistics, great sportsman. You know, he was a star player for Dungivin, went on to play for Derry. He uh, he was convicted of arson and went into the H blocks and was on the Dirty protest for four or five years where they lived in unimaginable conditions, you know, with a blanket. Was badly beaten when he was in there, had his shoulder broken and his hip smashed and all of that. But you know, his life went into free fall afterwards. So it was very uh, immediate for us. And, you know, I was fortunate because when I was 11 then, my father um, insisted that I go to boarding school in St. Pat's Armagh. Hmm. And so I was taken out of that then.
1: I, I, I kind of find it fascinating when you talk about how immediate it, it was. For I, I grew up in Kilkenny and I still lived there. And the North was always, despite being the top story in the news for so many years growing up, It it was a foreign country, and I don't mean that in the political sense. It was a foreign country, and just in terms of culture and impact on our lives, what was happening, you know, it it didn't impact us uh, at all. I
0: think so. Yeah, I think so. The historian Paul Larkin, I think, describes it very well. Um, You know, that distance that there is between the South and the North, even though, for example, with the GAA and with... All the things that we have in common, really, we're very, very close. But he 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 described that sort of thing where we were left to our own devices in the north. You know, the southern establishment, southern governments, successful governments, and then the establishment itself. Um, you know, and the you know the fact that, for example, Sinn Fein leaders couldn't be heard. There had to be voices voices over. There were all sorts of repressive measures. He describes it as this sort of em- embarrassment and shame that happens in any post-colonial society, where part of that society remains part of the empire and the other part gets its freedom. And there's always a slight sense of shame and embarrassment. Mm. And, uh, you know, which is why in the North, for example, you know, the, the, the general view, I think, and and I hope I'm not presuming when I say this, but I, I believe, because I, I obviously, I, I'm, you know, I've traveled freely and you know spend a lot of my time in the South and love the people and all the rest of it. But I think the general feeling is that the that the South, insofar as the Southern establishment is concerned, is a cold house for Northern Catholics. Um but you're right, it's very difficult to understand it unless you understand it emotionally. Mm. And you know, why would you want to understand it? I mean, when I went to Trinity, I was shocked that nobody was interested. Yeah. And you know, I I had I mean, I'd never had contact with Protestants. Like, I don't know if you read my column in last week's Sunday Independent where I talked about this. Yeah. I mean, not Dungiven, we didn't have my our piano, my piano teacher was a Protestant from the Largy. And my father befriended uh an old alcoholic man called Davy McCarthy from The Burnfoot Davy MacArthur. And Davy was a was a woodcutter and he was known as a chainsaw expert yeah and he was like you know Seamus Heaney Holland, man yeah he lived in the tumble down shack and he he was leather he was brown leather he never washed it he had about two teeth and he sang in a big sea song high-pitched voice and he laughed like this <laughs> <laughs> and he uh he uh you know he lived out of the bottom of a bottle and my father befriended him, and he used to come up to ours, you know, for his dinner. And my father, would, he, would, he would be always at our table on Christmas day. But because because he socialized with Catholics and because he drank in the Dolphin Bar and Gernay, he was an outcast in the Burnfoot. I mean, when my mother was the mayor of Limavady in two thousand and three, she went down to the Burnfoot. She was obviously a Sinn Fein at the time, mm. and she went down to turn on the Christmas tree lights in the Burnfoot. Foot. <laughs> no, t- no sooner had she turned her back. Then the locals came out with a chainsaw and cut the tree down <laughs> and uh and smashed the lights, et cetera, et cetera. So the Vari Council then did their best. You know, a few days later they they put what was left of the tree back up, but what, what had been a sort of a 35-foot tree was now six-foot. <laughs> and, and I could still you you can actually find uh an article about this in the nearest Times. But the the council then saying, you know, we 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 uh we understand the disappointment of locals that the tree is now somewhat shorter than they may have expected, <laughs> but but our but our but our resources are limited. <laughs> so 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 in that context also, I mean, it 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 would also be fair to say, Karen, that your feelings of being detached from the north and detached from what happened. Would be exactly what my children feel so my oldest boy Rory's 21 and obviously the 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 the, the IRA ceasefire that held was 1997 and then you had you know the the trimble adams hume uh, peace agreement and i mean the, the transformation was miraculous and it was for me an indication of the fact that um you know you had a a a, a big, very well-educated Catholic population and also a very well-educated Protestant population in the main. I mean, our public education system is the envy of many, many countries who really wanted very quickly to get on with things. And so once basic fairnesses were introduced, discriminatory practices in voting and housing and things like that, uh, and once we had the police force right, all those sorts of things, I mean, it was, for me the most spectacular peace process in modern history and so my children don't know anything about that and they they've never encountered violence seen mm. it i mean belfast is it has the lowest rate of domestic crime of any city in western europe and generally the north is a very very peaceful place I mean, wherever you would go it would be relaxed you'd be welcomed and uh, you know we've got pockets obviously which we can talk about if you like but So they're in exactly the same position. The other thing I think about people is that we have really short memories. We like to get on with things. We like to move on into the future. Yeah. And uh, so, so for example, I I imagine that as soon as there's a sufficient vaccination in relation to COVID and things are open again, we forget about the last 18 months very, very quickly.
1: If you're just tuning into the hard shoulder, Joe Broly is my guest for the Thursday interview. Don't go anywhere. We'll get the latest news headlines now. Here's Eamon. Thank you very much. If you are just tuning in to The Hard Shoulder, I'm delighted to say my guest uh, this week for the Thursday interview is Joe Brody. Joe, you were speaking before the news about that detachment, I suppose, that someone like myself who grew up in Kilkenny would have felt where Northern Ireland was just kind of, you know, Antrim and Sambo and the lads, you know, w- once a year maybe in Croke Park and that was it, that was their relevance Um, uh, 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 in our world. And, and your kids and the detachment they maybe feel to your experience growing up in Northern Ireland. Like, are your kids part of this generation that we hear about now who identify as Northern Irish?
0: Well, I mean, they wouldn't
1: be, um, I mean,
0: you know, they wouldn't be in any sense Republicans and they wouldn't be, you know, they would be, I think apolitical would be the best way to describe them. And there's a whole class of sort of, you know, middle-class unionist people and, you know, throughout the classes, I think on the nationalist side who are apolitical now and who are simply interested in, uh, you know, moving on to a pragmatic solution of things. And what we're seeing in the North over the past week is that the uh, DUP in particular, who have always used this playbook, you know, They will, so for example, they they made very dramatic errors around Brexit and then used very inflammatory language, all of the leadership used very inflammatory language for about two or three weeks. Then the chief constable, having recommended the prosecution of 24 Féin politicians for the Bobby Story funeral, um, they, they asked, they demanded his resignation whenever the public prosecution service declined to prosecute. None of that makes any sense, but the message that was being peddled um, by Arlene Foster and by the leadership was, you know, the union is in peril. The union is now in peril. The chief constable is essentially, I mean, one of the leaders of, of the DUP, one of their MLAs described Jerry Kelly as the new chief constable of the PSNI. And so that inevitably fostered small pockets of violence in places like um, Lanark Way and the Shankill Road, um, parts of the waterside in, in in Derry City, and then the DUP say, "Well, look, look what look what will happen if the union is threatened." But the problem is, of course, that in the north, everyone realizes that this is all doomed. You know, you're talking about handfuls of kids now. I mean, the main loyalist paramilitary groupings are opposed. The Loyalist side are opposed to this violence. You know, the old style leaders of loyalism like Tacky MacDonald and et cetera are saying, look, and the PUP are saying, look, stay off the streets. Look, your kids are just going to get prison sentences here and go into the prison system and destroy their own futures. This is not going to serve any purpose.
1: Who's who's prompting them to go on the street, though?
0: Well, I mean, I suppose the message being in these very deprived communities where they've always been told, look, you know, the most important thing is that we are British and you know that our culture is under threat and that we're under attack now none none of these things are correct i mean none of these things are correct uh and you know where where educational attainment is very poor i mean i've been reading the 2016 queen's university educational attainment report on the north it's 386 pages and the most striking and really worrying feature of that is the lack of educational attainment in these very poverty-stricken Protestant enclaves where we see the rioting taking place. Yeah. Where there's no premium put on education. Kids are leaving school very early. Very poor educational attainment. Now, flip that across to similar Catholic areas where there is an absolute premium put on education. And is that... It's extremely... I mean, you go to... Yeah. Well, I, I think it's it's a it's a cultural thing. It's a self confidence thing. It's yeah. also it's also a, a self help thing. Yeah, I Where was going to ask sorry
1: about self help yeah. and sorry to cut across. I just was speaking to someone in the north, this is why I jump in here about this recently, and they were talking about a, a a power shift in the middle classes or the professional classes, is how they described it. And I don't know if you go that far, but they talked about the culture of educational attainment within the Catholic community grew because that there was no guaranteed job. There wasn't a state job. There wasn't a job in Harlan and Wolf. There wasn't all of these jobs that in the Protestant working class community you could rely on. And now that those jobs don't exist anymore, the Catholics have built that culture of educational attainment and it doesn't exist in some of those Protestant communities you mentioned.
0: Well, well I'll tell you, I'll tell you there, that, that, is, that is correct. And all of the, the studies, all of the recent studies indicate that that is a, that is a true point that's made about the fact that you had generations of products, I mean at one stage there were 35,000 people working in the shipyard in Harland and Wolf, that was a job for life you, know, you were reared in Belfast and your dad worked in Harland and Wolf as a welder, well you just went into Harland and Wolf and that was your job, you know school was irrelevant, the same with shorts you know all those big industries the linen industry, all those things that are now gone and there are two important things about the Catholic I mean my, my father whenever he was chosen as a scholarship boy to go to St. Collins he told me this story once Whenever he came back, he only was home twice a year. So it doesn't give him was it nineteen miles to St Column's College, and he remembers getting off the bus on his first time coming back to to the town. You know, this was a huge thing for him to get a scholarship. I mean, same as Heaney also got a scholarship. They were in the same class together. This was a huge thing, and he remembers getting off the bus, and the elders of the town, Joe Beatty, Robbie Haston. You know meeting him at the head of the town and bringing him into Joe Beatty's house into the front room to grill him as to how he was getting on. And you look at a town like Dungiven, for example, not only does it have the, 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 the normal primary school and secondary school, etc. we now have three Irish language speaking schools, population of 3,000. So we have the knee school, the bone school, the man school and a massive premium put on education. Education, education, education. And this is a similar pattern that's repeated throughout the North. Um, I mean, you go to North Belfast, for example, to St. Malachy's school. I mean, my boys, uh, my oldest boys are are left now, but my two youngest boys are still there. You go there to the parent-teacher meetings, and that's in the middle of working-class North Belfast, Mm. right on the Crumbling Road. And it's like going to a championship match, the parent-teacher meetings. Cars everywhere, people there waiting respectfully and patiently, education, education, education. And uh, and also then you've got a self-help ethos that comes through the GAA. I mean, Jackie McDonald, the legendary um, loyalist paramilitary leader, he said, you know, and he has said it on many occasions, we need a Protestant GAA. We need something to glue us. We need something to engender those ideals of self-help and, and community spirit and everyone knowing each other you know I always say if I'm trying to explain to an outsider what the GA is like I say it's like the masons without the funny handshake <laughs> <laughs> and we have no and there's no class your your background doesn't matter and that idea of you know I know you although I don't know you you know and I'll do you a turn whether I actually know you or not it's neither here nor there but I'm here for you and you know that you can pick up the phone. And um, that's a massive thing so you drive up the falls road you see all that self-help all the community centers the adult literacy classes you know they the whole emphasis of the community is to leave no one behind the ga clubs are flourishing you know and yet you, you you go 100 meters across the peace line into the shankle and drive up the shankle and drive around and it is it is depressing and so disappointing to see You know, the lack of leadership, and that's why I call it the DUP. I'm apolitical myself, but I I call them out because it is a scandal the way they are exploiting those very deprived communities for their own ends and yet doing nothing to assist them. Um, You know, when Arlene Foster says, for example, that if there were a united Ireland, she would move to Norfolk. I mean, it's patently untrue. But the message that that sends to those areas is, look, this is, you know, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go when we're surrounded by these Republicans and these Fenians and these boogeymen? You know, which don't exist in reality, and so it's a massive problem in the North to 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 get past the noise of the DUP, yeah, and to, and to work towards a real, you know, a really sensible, workable solution for all communities. Um, you know, so my 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 suggestion has been to work towards an independent Northern Ireland. That would just remain exactly as it is, except we would have a proper government, you know, with with guarantees from Europe, from Irish America, um, from the UK, you know, we could, I mean, yeah. say 30 billion a year over the next 20 years. I mean, our deficit at the minute is only 14 billion a year. But if you had uh if you had a flourishing Stormont where politicians would actually have to do their job, at the moment it's just a it's a sort of a containment center for sectarianism, you know, and yeah. every time there's a sulk, well then the, the UK take over, the Secretary of State has taken over so many times when I, mean, I can't even I can't even remember, you know, how often that has been, and often you're not sure who in, who, in fact is running the country at any given time. Yeah. But, but once we get beyond that kindergarten, which was essential to cement the peace process, um, and I think the way to do that is to say, look, let's work towards an independent Northern Ireland in the first instance, you know, with the yeah. only caveat being, that you would have a referendum on on Europe, because obviously we voted very strongly to remain. Um, That would leave us as an independent country in Europe. Protestants and Catholics would just continue to go as they go at the moment. Everybody's culture would be respected as it is at the moment. Nothing would change. And then very quickly people would realise there's no boogeyman and it's just a job of work. What's the best way for us all to proceed?
1: Joe, you gave us a good sense before the break of how much Northern Ireland has changed given your experience growing up from the late 60s? Given that change, and given how hopeful people have reason to be compared to maybe the 60s, 70s, and 80s, why do you think you still have nightmares? Well, well, that's that, that's a bit. that that's
0: over the last four or five years. That is, um that has changed very significantly. Now, I'm still a night oil and nighttime, I take a deep breath when it comes along, but, but, but that has changed, you know, and, and I've, I suppose when you, you know, uh, when I gave the kidney, uh, I wanted to sort of preserve a life and to, I suppose, possibly to atone for the sins of, those around me and to try to make some sort of amends
1: who's who's Um,
0: and after that i I found that uh, the the past came rushing in which it hadn't before that and so i was forced to to work through that and um and you know i was I think very fortunate on the whole. I've had a very fortunate life, you know. I no one should be no, no one should be saying for me. Like, no. I don't mean it that way. But, but um, you know, we we were in our in our family. We were very much at the heart of it. And um, so, you
1: know, who's whose uh, whose sins were you atoning for?
0: Well, I mean, you know, we had. Um, there were lots of very uh, distressing events that occurred in and around the town. You know, there was a there was a horrendous bombing at Clady, and um, you know there were there were soldiers murdered outside the town. You know, there were there was a lot that there was a lot that went on that was of, was of great regret. Uh, you know, the idea that a young prison officer would be shot in the face regardless of what was going on. Um, or, or that, um, I mean, it, it, it is scarcely believable now that those things happened. But it was a lesson to me how quickly human beings can, if the conditions are correct, um, sort of regress towards cruelty and barbarism. And also I think that there are a proportion of people in our communities who are, you know, I would call them, you know, the sort of the, the the polite schizophrenics who, you know, all of a sudden in times of strife like that, it's like, I suppose, a country where there's conscription. Some people just feel, realize all of a sudden they have a capacity for violence, you know, and they have the right emotional approach to violence and they can be calm, composed and, and almost enjoy it. You know, I've heard, I have heard... Um, sort of veteran IRA men telling jolly stories about um, you know shooting British soldiers. You know, uh, in fact, one night I I was present when there was a very, on one level, a very funny dispute between two veteran IRA men about which of them it was who'd actually shot shot a soldier. You know, and uh, and and so. You know, it's it's it, it's not a surprise to me how quickly a society can become dysfunctional. I mean, you look at Germany, for example. I mean, who would believe you? Look, you, you go to Germany now and you think, I mean, it cannot be possible. What what they did, you know, it just simply cannot be possible. How did this extremely well-educated, sensible, disparate country come together to, you know, to create this? sort of cauldron of pure evil. Look at them now. Peace-loving, sensible, reasonable, logical, you know. So, you know, there's always there's always a warning there about what we're capable of. But the good news from the Northern perspective is that, you know, society is very peaceful, functioning well, and we just need to, I think, get through the next 10 years. E-e- easy does it. I know that I know that me Hall Martin, for example, has got a lot of criticism for saying, "Look, I don't think we should call a border poll." Yeah, eminently, et cetera, et cetera. But I I have to say, you know, I watched that BBC program the other night, which was a bit wishy washy. Wishy-washy. No, it was neither here nor there. Um, but listening to him saying, "Look, you know, we, we you know, I think." you know, we don't want to push anything and we don't want to have a border pole at the moment, et cetera, et cetera. It's difficult to disagree with that from the Northern perspective. I mean, I I, I have, you know, I, I visit at the peace peace mission, the peace center over in North Belfast and the Crumlin Road. And they're working on the ground all the time just to make sure that everything's okay and they bring the leaders from both sides together on the ground and kids who have troubles come there and they, all that sort of thing. And they would be very much the same way, I think. And look, easy does it. Easy does it. This is gonna happen organically. You know, let's not let's not push anything too quickly.
1: Easy does it. Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. You too, Kieran. <laughs>